Hello? Hello? It's all around us. everybody what's up this is Ro this week I am flying solo and if you hear what sounds like a jet engine going on behind me it's because Michigan has been deluged with a lot of rain and the humidity up here is just stifling and horrible right now I cannot stand humidity even with the air conditioner going it's just like ugh, it's just gross so anyways this week I am flying solo that was by design it's been a little while since I've done any kind of a solo show yes I know I've usually got some kind of a rotating co-host in and out just to add a little bit of flavor and variety to the show but this week I wanted to do things a little bit differently I'm interviewing a gentleman named Brandon Weston who came out with a fantastic book called Ozark Folk Magic and he contacted me and said hey I'd like to be on your show and most of the time when I get emails to be honest with you I just don't pay a lot of attention to them because they're usually from people that I'm just not interested in interviewing or topics that I really just don't care about I, I pretty much do this show so I can learn new things or put different viewpoints and ideas out there to the listeners who may be listening to a lot of podcasts that are like this, and I try very much to be different. This is probably why our show is not better known, because I don't do the whole paranormal greatest hits thing. Anyways, so Brandon sent me a copy of his book, and I liked it so much that I actually went out and bought an additional copy to give away to a friend of mine. I inhaled this book as soon as I got it. This isn't something that I normally talk about on the air, but I do a lot of magical study, um, practice and study and so forth, and I usually tend to gravitate towards the uh, my friend my friend has termed it low magic and it's magic for the common folk and a lot of this stuff I'm very fascinated with how these traditions and customs all work and how these people do these things that they do and where a lot of these practices and ideas and beliefs come from and this isn't magic that you have to go out and buy robes and daggers and all of the ceremonial stuff that stuff I tend not to gravitate towards because it just there's a lot of mesmia. It's it's fun to read about. It, it's cool, you know, to, like the robes and blah, 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 you know, and the books and burning candles and all that kind of stuff. But it's just not something that I, I gravitate towards. This stuff, however, I'm very fascinated by. And you'll probably hear me geek out a lot in this show because I was really excited to read this and I was really excited to talk to this guy, which brings me back to why I did it solo because I really wanted to make sure that all of these questions that I had, I was able to ask all these questions and go really in depth with a lot of this stuff without having um, somebody say something and it get taken off into a different direction or what have you. Plus, it's been a while since I've done a solo show just on my own, and actually it felt pretty good just to sit down by myself and do one-to-one -one with somebody else. 
Uh, it's a very different kind of book, which we'll talk about on the show. It's not a spell book like a lot of these magic books are. This is a book more on the history of what these practices were, um, the differences in the different kinds of folk magic practitioners. Um, all of these things were very interesting to me, and I really wanted to just kind of steep in that and, and really go into it. And Brandon was really into it. I, he's, he's done a lot of interviews and a lot of them are very cookie cutter interviews. And then I come along and I'm like, no, no, I'm going to ask you all of these questions. And I'm really excited about this stuff. And I think I come across as a little bit of a dork in the show. So please forgive me for that. Also, as, as is usual with Skype, there were some hiccups here and there and some dropping out of audio and stuff. I've done the best that I can to fix it and get rid of a lot of those gaps, but you're going to hear points in the conversation where sometimes a word or two is missing in the conversation. It doesn't happen a whole lot, but it happens. It annoys the living hell out of me when it happens because it ruins like the fluidity of the show, but I did the best that I could and you know, I tried to fix it, but nonetheless, uh, this is this was a great interview, and I really enjoyed talking to this guy, and, and he's going to come back uh, when his next series of books come out. So I'll stop rambling, and we'll jump into the show, and I will see you guys at the other side. Here we go. Brandon Weston. God, my tongue just got all tied. You have a fantastic book out called Ozark Folk Magic, Plants, Prayers, and Healing. You contacted me and said, hey, I've got I've got this book out. I'd like to be on your show. I got a copy of it, and I inhaled this book. I absolutely loved it. I've been a big, um, a big studier of Ozark Folk Magic and powwow magic and things like that for a long time. So um, welcome to Project Archivist. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be on the show. So this book here, um, it's it's I, I don't even really know. Where, I guess we should start with what what brought you down this path to get into this stuff. Are you from the Ozarks? Are you from the Appalachia area? Did I say that right? I, I, I sometimes pronounce Appalachia, Appalachia. I, I'm, I'm from I'm from Detroit. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so the the Appalachia Appalachia divide is. is is you know it, it's kind of how you can tell um, you know whether you're from the northern mountain range or the southern mountain range. So the southerners say Appalachia usually, and then the northerners will say Appalachia. But the the interesting thing is that, you know, the mountains themselves extend uh, both physically and culturally, both into the south and up into the north. So I, I am from the, the Ozarks. I'm a multi-generational Ozarker. My, my parents are from here, grandparents, great-grandparents, pretty much um, all the way back to around early 1800s, 1820, uh, when the land in the Ozarks opened up. Um, and then before that, my family was from Appalachia. So uh, a lot of people from Tennessee, Georgia, mostly. So yeah, I'm an Ozarker. And uh, I kind of got into this stuff as a kid. Um, but, you know, back then it was it was mostly just, you know, culturally, you know, Ozark. And uh, so I grew up with a lot of strange family stories and 
you know, folk remedies and things like that, that I didn't really even think anything about until I got to college and started reading Vance Randolph. So his Ozark Magic and Folklore. And, you know, once I picked up that copy, <laughs> copy of that book, I, something clicked. And, you know, I, I, up until that point, I never really knew that I was a part of a culture. <laughs> you know, I just thought it was things that my family did. And, but he was talking about these things, these practices and all of the weird stuff, the, the weird, you know, in the forest that my grandpa used to talk about and, you know, the healing practices and all of that. And so I, I saw at that point more as a researcher, I, I was approaching the Ozarks as a, you know, folklorist or amateur folklorist historian. And uh, so I, I looked at what Vance Randolph had to offer as well as, you know, there's a limited amount of folklorists who have written about the Ozarks, um, but I devoured everything that they had. I found uh, one of his books at a yard sale called "We Always We Always yeah. Lie to Strangers." It's it was super beat oh, up. Yeah. The cover was beat up, and I got it for five bucks. And I got it like three years ago, like out in the sticks somewhere, like because me, oh, yeah. me and the wife go to yard sales all the time. And I came across this book, and it was like Tales from the Ozarks. And I'm like, well, I'm yeah. into this stuff. Little did I realize how rare that book was. I'm sure it's not it worth is. a lot more than what I've got it at because it's really beat up. But like yeah. the binding is all shot on it and stuff. But I'm I'm a I'm like one of those book files, you know. I'm, I I have this <laughs> library that's huge, and it was it was great going into it. So it's really cool to hear you mention that name. Well, and that's kind of the the story of Ozark folklore. Um, you know, there's there was a bunch of stuff written in the 40s and earlier on, um, and now you can't find any of it except at garage sales. Or, you know, Ozark magic and folklore is, is pretty much the only thing that's still in print just because of, it's been so popular. But, you know, when I, when I read that book, uh, you know, I was just thinking to myself, there's been so much time since that's that was written. What has happened in the Ozarks since then? Because, you know, there were things that my family had shared with me, but there was a whole lot more that, you know, I didn't even know existed. And so I wanted to know, is this stuff still around? So I kind of started collecting stories from family first and then work my way out from there. Um, I did quite a few tours of the Ozarks in between about 2012 and 2015. Um, just every chance I could get, I'd go out and try to find new informants and they would connect me with family. And so it just became kind of this big <laughs> mishmash of a bunch of information um, what I found myself focusing on was, uh, you know, modern practitioners, magical and healing practitioners. That was a big interest area of mine. The, the sort of magical healing techniques and spiritual healing techniques has kind of always interested me. Um, the, the herbal techniques are cool too, but they've, they've been written about, you know, I wanted to know about the other stuff, the stuff that people don't talk about. Yeah. I was going to say, this isn't really, um, this isn't a spell book. This book does does a really good job of explaining the what's and the how's and all that stuff. Yeah. But I, I kind of thought of it as somebody introducing me, here is a kitchen, here is how you use the appliances, this is yeah. what you do with this. But you didn't exactly give anybody any recipes. However, yeah. there's enough information here where if somebody wanted to start being a practitioner of this stuff, that they could probably feel their way around and have a really good head start on it. Oh, absolutely. And I will say... So I wrote this book with the intention of 
writing a recipe book, a spell book. And that, that book, I, you know, knock on wood, is going to come out next year. So it's going to be it's going to be a spell book. It's going to be basically the you know Ozark uh, Ozark folk magic. It's an intro, sort of the groundwork and all of that. Because I really wanted to, you know, I, I, no one has talked about that groundwork for so long, and and a practitioner has never written about it. And so I wanted people to be very familiar with the all of the complexities, folk magic and healing practices, before they even looked at any traditional spells or prayers or anything like that. Well, so, let me ask you yeah. this, um, before we get too far into that, before yeah. we jump into all this and everything, could you explain to me what exactly Ozark folk magic is? And you know, where did it start and does it have any differentiation with something like powwow magic or what you would find in, in the long lost friend or something like that? Is it a flavor of its own and where did it come from? I know that's a long question. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, as with all aspects of folklore in general, it's pretty complicated, but you, you know, like with other American traditions, it's a mishmash. Um, so Ozark, our, our direct cultural, I guess, siblings is in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, that's where Ozark people came from. The first hill folk that settled into the Ozarks came as small families and communities from Appalachia. So in, in Appalachia, this culture sort of developed as a mixture of European traditions, both uh, you know, the Scots-Irish always get mentioned and the Germans always get forgotten, it seems like. But uh, specifically Pennsylvania Germans who moved into the northern Appalachias and then south. So that the the sort of Appalachian folk magic culture is is a mishmash of European, the sort of pan-European tradition, but also uh, mixed with indigenous traditions as well. Um, specifically peoples of the Southeast, uh, Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, Kiyuchi, Kosati, um, and a bunch of other ones, um, as well as elements from African systems as well, West African systems that would have come in through interactions with the slaves. So basically all of this stuff <laughs> merged together and then came to the Ozarks. And in the Ozarks, we've had a couple hundred years now of evolution and sort of the you know these these practices that are based in families they're passed down through word of mouth things like that they've had time to steep they've had time to when mix in other things as well so our closest you know the ozarks we're, we're still a part of what's called the the greater appalachian cultural region i tell people if you know, if you have a question about Ozark folk practices, you may be able to find the answer looking to Appalachia um, just because, you know, culturally we're so similar. But the Ozarks, we have developed our own systems. We've developed our own relationship to the land, which is an important part of the practice in general and just Ozark folk culture. Um so it is a distinct tradition. It's very similar to Appalachian traditions. I think, you know, if you are from any sort of Southern uh, folk magic background, you will feel at home with a lot of Ozark practices. Uh, but it is distinct. Um, it, there are elements of uh, powwow and braukarai in the practice. 
that came in with German families to the area. And Vance Randolph in, in Ozark Ma- Magic and Folklore, he actually, um, he includes a, a, a verbal charm from, directly from the long lost friend that he claims was given to him by one of his informants. I've since learned that that might not be entirely true, um, but I know from personal experience working with with healers, there are healers that do work with the long lost friend. I've seen copies of it, and now whether these are copies that have been passed down through families for you know a couple hundred years, or whether it's through you know modern exposure to different folk magic practices and things like that i don't know but i do know that some of the old practices even bear a lot of similarity to to some of the stuff that you found find in long lost friend and just that tradition in general so it's while it's its own thing i think that a lot of there's a lot of fingerprints from a lot of different cultures i've talked to you know people and You know, I talked to a guy about the book. He's from France and he's researching French uh, folk traditions and folk magic amongst, you know, rural people in France. And we were comparing uh, a lot of similar practices there. So I think, you know, folk, these sort of Western folk traditions, I think that they all um, have a place, you know, within Ozark traditions. And yeah, so if you're from one of those traditions, you'll, you'll definitely recognize a lot of the, the practices. Most of these traditions, um, from what I've always understood, people are very guarded about their secrets and things like that. So outside of what you learned in your family, how hard was it to go out and find and research this stuff? And how willing were people to talk to you about this stuff because a lot of people are like you know like for example in the, you know we, we 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 always lie to strangers you know a lot of yep. back in those days people didn't want to give this stuff away unless it was somebody really close in the family so as a result as like you were saying earlier a lot of these traditions have been lost and and are beginning to fade away from history and time so do, do we, did you have a hard time tracking down information were people willing to talk and were willing to teach you things People were willing to talk to me only when they found out that I was an Ozarker. So there's kind of a game that Ozarkers play, especially old timers. If you if you meet old timers out in these rural areas, um, you know, they're, generally speaking, Ozarkers will always be hospitable because hospitality is such a important part of the culture. Um, but hospitality doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, give up all of their life secrets and, and hopes and dreams and things like that. But, you know, we kind of play these games. So, you know, you may meet somebody and they're, you know, they're very nice. They offer you some tea or some coffee and, and start talking. And then they ask you, well, you know, where are you from? You know, you say where you're from. Oh, oh, I, I have a cousin who lives out that way. Uh, do you know such and such family? And, you know, what were your family last names? And so it's this sort of genealogy game because what they're doing is they're sussing out how Ozark you are. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, so they're trying to determine, they're trying to place you, um, you know, in, in the Ozarks. And what's funny is... You know, I've done enough genealogy work. I, I, I can play that game all day long. 
And what's funny <laughs> is that, you know, a lot of times what you find is that, you know, there are some family connections because, you know, there's the, the, the family groups and communities are so tightly knit in the area that, uh, you know, I've, I've met complete strangers who I figured out were ended up being, you know, third or fourth cousins, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, but, but that genealogy game is really important. Uh, and if you're able to pass that, if you're, you know, you, you gain a certain amount of, uh, credibility and people are more likely to talk to you, but even, even being trusted, I had to be very careful about my language more than anything. So there were, there were groups of people that I knew I couldn't say anything about magic, uh, because magic has this connotation of witchcraft even, you know, even today. And so I had to phrase things in a very specific way. So instead of talking about magic, I had to talk about, you know, do, did you have anyone in your family who prayed for people? Did you have anybody in your family who could stop blood or could, you know, blow the fire out of burns, things like that. So I had to adjust my language. Now, with a lot of modern practitioners, you know, magic comes up quite a bit, you know, people are reclaiming magic, they're reclaiming these sort of traditions. So, you know, amongst a lot of the, the more modern practitioners, I was okay talking about folk magic. You know, I talk a lot about magic and things like that, but I always, I always, you know, preface that by saying these are terms that we use today to describe this phenomenon, but it should be noted that traditional people don't use these terms. They, they have a, a very different language that they use around these practices. But I, I prefer to use magic and folk magic and things like that because it's easier for me to explain these topics by saying that. It's, it's, you know, it's a little bit more relatable for people, uh, for readers looking at it. But yeah, the, I think the hardest part for me collecting things was finding the informants um, because I, I collected a lot of really interesting stories, but not really anything that, not, not the good stuff. It, it, you know, it wasn't the stuff that I was really looking for. So finding the informants was really hard, but then also being able to judge uh, what, what language was appropriate for the situation or what was culturally appropriate for the situation. Yeah, how do you walk so, into a situation like that? Do you just walk in and say, hi, I'm here to collect stories on folk magic you know obviously you can't use that wording and stuff but you know people right. people don't know you from shinoa and as you've stated yep. they're very gun shy about sharing this information um i would assume probably because of persecution and looking at being looked at shyly and again some people just don't want to give up their secrets this this stuff was regarded as sacred knowledge at one time and yeah. it amazes me that there's still people out there that have that still have these traditions like locked away, like great great grandma or great grandpa or something like that, and that some of those attitudes might even still be there, you know, because you'd think now in this day and age that maybe people would want to let that go a little bit because these traditions are starting to get lost, but it doesn't sound like that. Well, it's kind of a mixture. So uh, I've met I've met traditional healers that were very excited to talk to me. And actually, I, I've I've met healers who gave me way more information than 
you know, I probably should have been given. You know, people traditionally, you know, things like verbal charms and prayers were always passed down word of mouth. And once they were passed from the person that has the verbal charm to a student or an apprentice or a family member, the power, it, it's believed that the power goes away for that original person completely. So I, I've, in a couple cases, I, I met people that, you know, were not only excited to talk to me about their lives, but they gave me these verbal charms. And I understand the power in that because what they were giving me, they knew that they it was going to be gone for them. They knew it was their last ditch effort to pass wow. this stuff down. You know, they didn't have kids or grandkids who were in or on their own. The community, you know, in most cases, the community still sort of looked at them as a healer, but they were ready to retire. <laughs> you know, they were ready to, the, the power, the gift is, you know, a lot of times is seen as a burden. Uh, and as a practitioner myself, I, I understand that. And once you reach a certain age, there there's a great sort of liberating feeling i'm sure from being able to just sort of pass all of that along and and not really have to carry that burden around anymore um so yeah it's it's hard just sort of you know, like you said just walking through the door but uh i approached it mostly from i was collecting stories from the ozarks from the old days um, I, I did present myself as a folklorist and then amongst practitioners later on because uh, I didn't start off as a practitioner. That came later. Uh, but once I started sort of following that path, I did introduce myself as, as a practitioner as well. Do you have but any stories that you'd be willing to tell, like any short ones or anything like that, that maybe somebody has passed on to you? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I've got a lot of stories. <laughs> um, the, the, the interesting ones for me, because I collected, you know, everything from, you know, childhood stories to, you know, how did you get the power or how did you get the gift and everywhere, everything in between. Um, the, the really interesting stories for me were, were collected from those like the modern practitioners that were still a part of these lineages. Um, so they gained their power from someone else in their family who gained it from someone in their family who gained and all the way back. And I only met a couple of these because that's very rare. Um, you know, there was a good two, three, four generations uh, of Ozarkers that, you know, wanted to get away from the hills they wanted to escape the hills and all of that and so it's really rare to find those sort of unbroken lineages because usually what happens is somewhere along there so all these people moved away and they lost all of this knowledge uh, but i did encounter it a couple of times and the, the the of those the really interesting healer stories for me were the people that gained their power through encounters with otherworldly entities uh, so there's lots of ways people Ooh, can. Do you have any of it. those stories? <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> do tell. So what I kind of and this is a lot of this stuff isn't really recorded by folklorists, and for a while I thought that this was kind of a modern phenomena, maybe influenced by traditional witchcraft practices that came into the area in the past, you know, thirty years, things like that. But what I came to find these 
these stories have been here for generations. It's just in the past, people didn't have an outlet to talk about them. If you talked about, you know, getting your power from angels, people were going to probably shun you, you know, yeah. things like that. Um, so I've met a few healers um, that worked with angels. Um, the, I, the, the ones that are very interesting for me are the ones that work, worked with the fairies, or we call them the little people. Um, so in one case, there was a woman that I met who um, sincerely believed that she was born with the gift because her mother um, had relations with a fairy in the woods and it you know got pregnant and she was born uh and she when she was a kid she had strange powers that just you know manifested she could heal people and things like that and the community sort of rallied around her uh because ozark people are very strange on the outside you know and especially in rural areas there's this very conservative shell but underneath that people believe in a lot of weird stuff um, but there's this idea that, you know, we can believe in a lot of stuff, but as long as we don't talk about it, it's fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we can believe in, in the little people or the fairies, but it's talking about it that makes it a problem. And so the community sort of rallied around her. And when I met her, she was an old lady, um, but, you know, had been seen as uh, a healer. And for some people, some people called her a witch woman, um, things like that. But she she didn't have any problem saying that you know she believed her gift came from the other world came from um this fairy father that she had uh who she never met um she did have a father who was in the home but um that was not uh, her biological father uh and there there are others too there was a woman that i met who uh, when she was young, she was out in the woods playing and she got lost and um, she started crying. She started panicking because uh, she couldn't find her way back home. And one of the little people showed itself to her. Um, she said it was this little man uh, appeared next to this rock and he took her back to a path that she could follow back to her house. And But before leaving her, he asked if she wanted any power if she wanted to be able to heal people and she was a little girl and so she thought that that was interesting so she said yes and the the little man asked her if she if she would be willing to never marry for this power and she said yes she agreed to it and so from then on she made a conscious effort to stay single uh, and when i met her she was also celibate at the time um, because she she believed that you know if she broke that rule that wow. her power would go away and there, there's lots of other encounters with you know not just the little people but nature spirits in general that offer some sort of power or gift uh, the little people is a really interesting area just because they're they're such tricksters they're very capricious so uh, you know I've met people who I met one guy who lost vision in one eye uh, in an exchange for power. Um, I met another guy who lost the use of one of his hands, uh, in, because as an exchange for, for power from the other world. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the interesting area to look at, um, for me anyway. And what, what I kind of figured out talking to people, 
uh, because uh, all of the people that I talked to that had gained their power in this way, it was it, it was almost as if they were talking about something mundane. Um, they didn't think it was anything exciting. It was just a part of daily life. And so as I got to talking to people, you know, I kind of realized that, you know, this this practice or this connection to that that other world part of nature has always been around amongst practitioners. It's just it hasn't manifested in the recorded folklore because people at one time just really were scared to talk about it uh, because that stuff is so connected to the, the sort of stereotypical ideas of witchcraft. Yeah, um, nowadays, witchcraft is kind of a catch-all term. Um, absolutely. You, you have this, what, you seem, what seems to be going on is this reclamation of the term witch. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've got people that do various different kinds of practices and magic, and I've even done it myself. I had a guy at work the other day who, uh, I work in this little tiny office where I work at, it's basically a closet, and there's there was a fly in there or something. And this guy walks in, he's like, how come there's always flies around you? And I was busy on the computer, and without even thinking about it, I just went, because I'm a witch. And just kept on going, and then there was just like this tense silence and then, like the guy just walked away, you know, because I've got, you know, I've I've got different bracelets and I've got a lot of symbology and stuff. I I don't I, I'm not a pagan or anything like that, but I I am interested in the folklore and all of these different things. So in their eyes, not being able to make a distinction, I, I you know, I, I could be like, yeah, I I practice this or I practice that. It wouldn't matter if you're not somebody who's a part of this. It's just all witchcraft to everybody. Yeah. So witchcraft has become this general catch-all term. Like you could you could be doing powwow magic or you could be doing whatever and it would still, well, you're casting spells. It, that's, that's, that's witchcraft right. you know? <laughs> without even understanding what it is. And a lot of people seem to be like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm, okay. Yeah, sure. I'm a witch. I'll, I'll, I'll run with that. I'll take that. Let's, let's go with it. You know? And it's, it's just not like, but if you're people that are in the know or of this world or people that study this stuff, you kind of go, well, wait a minute. What do you, could you break it down a little bit more and be more specific about what it is that you do? And then there's this usually this aha moment from the other side going, Oh, okay. Here's somebody I can finally talk to, you know, (laughs) which I'm sure you've probably ran into yourself a few times. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I find myself doing the same thing where I use the word witch because it's easy because, you know, culturally we, we have, you know, there's a lot rolled up in the word witch and, you know, amongst, you know, where I live is, you know, in town and, you know, we have new age store here and we have witches doing circles and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, in workshops and lectures and stuff, I can call myself a witch and people knows, knows what that means. And, uh, you know, I found myself encountering modern practitioners out in rural areas that were starting to do the same thing. So, so the people in their community didn't really have any words to describe what they were doing. Um, so they kind of filled in the blanks by calling themselves a witch. Now, in some cases, that isn't a very smart thing to do. Uh, you know, there's still very conservative pockets in the rural areas where, you know, the word witch is, you know, has very specific connotations. And those yes, connotations it is of the devil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Which ironically, what you're doing and talking about in here is very much not of the devil because a lot of the stuff 
even with powwow magic and things like that, is very Christian, Christian based and Christian oriented. Right. I, I've often wondered if that was simply done more of a means of protecting them, you know, of people protecting themselves from being burned at the stake or what have you. And it's oh, like, you know, well, yes, I'm, I'm using, well, I'm not, I'm not a bad witch. I'm using, these are basically prayers and these are all these different things and there's Christianity incorporated into it and people would go, all right, well, he's using the word of God, so he's probably okay. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, at least in the Ozarks, there was such a fine line between the healer and the witch. Um, you know, all it took was one dissatisfied customer, uh, and, you know, you're labeled a witch by the community. Uh, so, you know, at least in my own research, I found that a lot of healers, the, the healers that were very popular in communities were very pious people. There's a lot of preachers who also did, you know, magical healing or spiritual healing on the side. But, you know, I, I 100% believe that in, in a lot of cases that was not necessarily a front, but a way for healers to protect themselves and to keep working. Uh, because, you know, if, if you are pious, you know, there, you're there's less <laughs> you're less likely to be accused of doing something evil or, you know, against the grain of society, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, <laughs> one of the interesting things I found, there's this belief in, in Ozark folk magic, I guess, amongst he, pre, at least my, modern practitioners, this idea that, you know, there's this magical energy in the world, this magical force and that force is neutral. And traditionally, people, you know, the, the separation was the healer uses this power for good and the witch uses it for evil. And the healer always heals and the witch always hurts, harms, steals from people, things like that. But the reality of the situation is that there was no really distinction there amongst practitioners themselves. All of these separations and distinctions came from the outside. Amongst practitioners themselves, everybody was using this energy for everything. So healers were cursing each other. Healers were, you know, fighting against their enemies or rivals. Um, So-called witches were, were using this power to heal. So everybody, you know, Everybody that had this gift or this this inclination towards that magic, they were all working in, in in all sorts of ways. But, you know, from the outside, people made these very sort of firm separations between, you know, what the healer does and what the witch does. And if you stray either side, there's problems. I get this vision in my head, pardon the term that I'm going to say this, I mean no disrespect, but I get this term of like redneck wizard Harry Potter battles going on, you know, down down in the hollers and stuff like that, you know, where it's not the guy wearing the cloak and, and, and the hat, or it's a guy wearing overhauls with, with a stick and, you know, and a straw in his mouth and, yeah. you know, and you, you, get this, you get this image of these these people doing these redneck wizard battles back and forth, which is something that you don't normally envision, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, they, they still go on today. Uh, I mean, I, I met healers who still you know cursed their rival in the next town wow really even even yeah. to this day wow oh, yeah. yeah it definitely happens um even in my own work you know i've had i i work in a very different way i feel like you know it's it's much better for me to work on transforming things rather than just you know cutting away things so even you know 
enemies that I've had. I've had a lot of friends come from enemies. I was going to um, say, like, because you must walk of- a very fine line then. Like, you, because you, you're just somebody, you're kind of somebody on the outside looking and trying to learn. So I would assume that you make friends on all sides of the field. No, which absolutely. can put you in some pretty precarious situations. Like, uh, have you pissed off a lot of people and had hexes and curses thrown <laughs> at you yet? Or, you know, have you been able to, to skirt that line pretty well? Well, I mean, if I, if I've been cursed, I, I mean, I don't know that I have been <laughs> anyway. I, I have met some people that, um, hill folk in general, you know, a lot of people are living very hard lives and, when they see people coming from the outside, especially me, I mean, I, I you know, you can't see me, but I've, I've got tattoos and, and all this other stuff. I'm from the big city, even though, you know, it's not that There's big. There's a city boy trying now. You're trying to do magic. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I encountered people that, you know, they, they were absolutely not willing to talk to me just because, you know, they, they had a chip on their shoulder. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there was a couple people that, uh, not only didn't talk to me, but, you know, threatened me, things like that. Yeah. But, you know, it. I, the way I look at it is, you know, I'm, I am, even though I'm from the Ozarks, I'm still not from where they're from. I'm, I'm an outsider. I'm coming into this. And I think uh, the majority of the people that I met and, and the majority of the people that I'm still meeting, even, you know, after publishing the book, I've been meeting a lot of new people uh, coming forward and everything about their their. Uh, gifts and stuff but uh, the majority of the people I think they recognize that I'm really really wanting to help revitalize and heal the culture I'm not coming in from the outside just trying to make a profit off this stuff I'm really trying to help people get this culture back moving you know Uh, because it's it's uh, it's it's really at risk of completely dying out that was my next question is is how are people like when you go in and tell, do you tell people, hey, I'm collecting this information because I'm going to release some books about it to try to put it back out there, which leads me back to the the secretive not wanting to tell a lot of people kind of things at this point. So has it reached a point where people are beginning to realize if we don't do something, all of this is going to be gone? You know, is that how, are, are they treating you with respect in that regards or are they still getting kind of squeamish because you're walking and they're saying, hey, this is what I'm looking for and this is what I'm going to do? Or do you not even tell people what you're doing? No, I, I always tell people what I'm doing. Um, about halfway through, you know, when I was collecting things, I, I, I met a healer. I was, it was, it ended up, she ended up being one of the people that I worked with the most, uh, just because she had a lot of traditional practices that were a part of her life, and she was pretty active in her community. Um, but we were sitting down, and I was talking to her about the project, and sort of, I was telling her, you know, I, I want to make sure. I'm respectful and collect everybody's names and only publish what they wanted me to publish. And she just stopped me and she said, you know, you're a part of this story too. And that was, it was kind of a slap in the face because up until that point, I, I was the folklorist, you know, I was the collector. I didn't consider myself a part or, you know, as an informant, I didn't consider myself a part of the story. So she actually identified the gift in me and we ended up starting to work with each other and, so that kind of changed my entire focus. After that, I didn't even bring a tape recorder with me. Uh, if I if I talked to anybody, I just told them, "Hey, I, I'm not recording any of this. I may use some of your stories um, if in a book, um, or I may use some of your rituals or spells, as long as they aren't 
you know, secret. Um, but it was mostly just conversations with people after that. And in the book, I, I made a point of not uh, publishing any names, um, you know, yeah, or change that. Yeah. Changing the names because I'm not a folklorist, you know, they're, they're a folklorist and I really respect what they do. This book is not, I didn't want this book to be that same thing. I didn't want people to, to look through and say, well, now I'm going to go track down these people and, and find out what they know and things like that. I wanted to present the book and really present the culture from the perspective of someone in the culture, from, from the perspective of a practitioner. So even, even today when people contact me, you know, there's a lot of people contacting me with stories, which I love stories. So I'm always happy to, to hear from people. Um, they'll, they'll send me, you know, oh, my granny used to, you know, know how to do this stuff and or whatever. And all of that stuff is really interesting to me. But I think the the pushback isn't about the secrecy of the culture, because I think even people that aren't practitioners they recognize that times are changing and changing quickly and they 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 want to talk they want to talk about their st- stories about healers but stories about just growing up in the ozarks in general um you know way back when <laughs> um but the pushback that i see is coming from people who don't like the subject in general they don't they don't appreciate that um, I'm talking about folk magic and healing. Um, there, there have been Ozarkers <laughs> that have emailed me or contacted me, and they, they say I'm straight up lying about all of this. None of this has ever existed in the Ozarks. And I have a hard time. So, but yeah, I, I can't. There's, there is a lot of information out there. So for someone to tell you that you are lying, it's like, well, okay, if I'm lying, what about all this other information? Like, right. The long lost friend is the one I go back to, um, Vance Randolph. You know, yeah. so uh, you, like, you're not the first person to do this. You're the first person that really in, has done a good job with it in a modern context that I can think of. I'm gonna probably gonna eat a bullet for that one. But um, so <laughs> for someone to tell you that you that you're lying and this isn't real, it's kind of like what what are you getting at here? Which, what right. what are you trying to say? You know? Yeah, and I mean, I you know I I, I tend to be a very um, you know, see all sides sort of person. I, I, it's probably my cancerian nature. I just kind of like to everyone to be friends. Uh, <laughs> and so I, you know, even when people contact me about stuff like that, I always respond, you know, thank you for contacting me. I appreciate your story. And I <laughs> kindly fuck off. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, so I can, I can kind of see where they're coming from. Um, because, you know, there is this image of the good old days. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are stuck in the good old days, or at least the framework, the mindset of the good old days. And for them, in the good old days, none of this existed. But at the same time, you know, racism didn't exist, you know, bigotry didn't exist in the good old days, that sort of thing. Um, And so they're all kind of the same people. um, And, you know, I'm sympathetic to it, but I will say that, you know, the overwhelming majority of people that have been contacting me have actually been people around my age. So I'm, I'm a millennial. Uh, so people, you know, around my age, a little bit older, a little bit younger, this sort of, you know, generation, 
I think is just really interested in folk practices. I think it's a good time for revitalizing stuff like that. I've and noticed so, that. It seems that more. I'm I'm in, I'm about to turn fifty, um, and I, I have no problem with millennials. God bless you guys. I think you guys catch way too much grief from people. Um, <laughs> you know, but I've seen a lot of. I got. I my wife's starting to feel. I've seen a lot of kids your age, um, <laughs> but it seems like the millennials more so than anybody. There is this regrasping of things like tarot, uh, yeah. Wicca. Um, you know, just all of these different old traditions where, and I'm, it's cool to see, and I'm not really sure why it's happening, but it's good to see it where the millennial generation has no problem going out and not embracing the stereotypical Christianity religion like that, where they are going out and they are buying tarot cards, they are buying books and magic. Like for a while when I was growing up, you had the really small, small spiritual section at the bookstore. And, yep. you know, magic shops or spiritual shops, holistic shops were few and far between. Now it's it's not uncommon to go on Facebook and see somebody talking about crystals and 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 different plants and healing and, and that they're very proud of. Yes, I follow this path of magic or I follow this practice or something like that. And it's it's um it's it's now become this age where yes I'm a millennial and this is what I do and you can either embrace it and if you don't I don't care you know right and it, it's cool to see because as you as we've talked about this is lost history that's going away and people are revitalizing it and they're also seem to be doing um, and I don't know if you've noticed this in folk magic or not but they're also beginning to add their own flavor to it yeah. um, you're seeing things like a Satru with like Odin and Thor and Loki and all the old gods and stuff are you're seeing that have a resurgence um, and not necessarily in the white supremacist realm either um, but they're also adding their own they're, they're updating it in their own way and bringing it into a modern age so without going too far off of tangent are you seeing that happen with what you're studying here are you seeing your generation take all these old folk magic and bring it into a new era and update it for lack of a better term yeah I do um, I mean just from personal experience um, I think, you know, my parents and my grandparents, those two generations, I found, you know, talking to, to old timers and around the area, they, they're kind of these lost generations. Um, so my parents and my grandparents generations, they, they really, they really wanted to escape the mountains. Like I was talking about earlier, they, they you know, they wanted desperately to leave everything behind that was this the hillbilly stereotype or the redneck stereotype and that meant leaving behind a lot of culture as well so i feel like my generation we kind of grew up in a culture vacuum where you know we were just <laughs> looking for anything to sort of fill that uh because you know what our parents and our grandparents were were doing and are doing that it, it didn't make sense to us i and can so, totally imagine grandpa back in my day we had to go out in the wood and dig up ginseng we didn't have stores to go buy right. all this stuff you know you kids are spoiled okay grandpa <laughs> yes you know <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> take an old one yeah. into you take an old guy into one of these spiritualist stores and it's like god damn you got all this stuff right here laid out for you look at that you know? <laughs> Exactly. And, and so for me, you know, I think a lot of people filled that that vacuum with, you know, a lot of different sort of cultural things. For me, it was really latching on to the Ozarks, to, to revitalizing that culture that was lost with my grandparents and parents. And so that was really one of the the major drives for me to write the book, because I wanted to write the book that I would have loved reading as a kid. I wanted to write the book 
book that, you know, uh, other kids that were, you know, growing up in that cultural vacuum could pick up and, and say, hey, you know, I'm an Ozarker. You mean there's there's actually cool stuff that happens here? So that that has re- and what's really exciting is people have contacted me and have had, you know, said, you know, thank you. You have validated me as an Ozarker. I never knew this stuff was around. And now I feel myself, you know, all of these memories coming back and I'm seeing, you know, how my family practiced some of this stuff. So for me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited that, that young people are really getting into it. People, you know, not just my age, but younger people have been contacting me too. Uh, and they're really into it. I think a lot of people, um, are seeing, you know, the, the sort of the witchcraft trend, the tarot crystal trend, they're seeing that as something a little bit vapid, um, and they're wanting a deeper connection, not just to practice, but also to identity. And uh, I, I think with, at least, you know, with, with the Ozarks, there's that potential there. There's the potential to not just have the folk magic practices, but also have the, the, the cosmology underneath it, the mythology underneath it, the, the connection to nature, the connection to the other world, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really exciting for me to see people, anybody interested in it. But I do see that the, mo- the majority of people that are contacting me are young people. So moving on, let's go into the realm of theory and practice a little bit. Sure. You've spoken about how it sounds to me like this is something that you, is this something that you're born with the ability to do? Is it something that you can learn? And you also mentioned that, like with reference to the little folk, which you do mention a lot in the book, you do have a lot in here about little folk and fairies, that it's something that's given to people. So which is it, or it is a combination of the three? It can be a combination of the three. So a really good metaphor that a healer gave to me, and I, I think I do mention it in the book, but um, it's of a, a pitcher of water. And, you know, sort of <laughs> like a, a tea pitcher, uh, like a plastic pitcher. Um, and, you know, some people are born with their pitcher full up already of water. Um, those are people that are, are said to have been born with the gift um, the, the water that we're filling in this picture with is this sort of magic, this neutral magic that derives from nature. It derives from the divine. Um, it's a sort of mystery where it actually comes from. But some people are born with their pitcher half full. Um, and then some people don't have any water in their pitcher. But the, the power exists in the world. And so even if you don't have water in your pitcher, you can um, be given that power by somebody who does have it. So, you know, in the old days, people believed that, you know, it, passing down verbal charms and rituals and things like that, you know, a person was pouring their water out into this other pitcher. And at some point, they're not going to have any water left. It's all going to be gone. So practices were, you know, kept secret for that reason. But you can also get power and magic from the other world, from encounters with the other world, from encounters with spirits. So, you know, being born with the gift is, um, I think, you know, most people would say it's probably the quickest way (laughs) to get where you need to go. But obviously not everybody is born with this. Uh, But even if you aren't, you know, you still have a place. There's still ways of gaining that power. Um, And 
I, I always like to say that there are as many practices in the Ozarks as there are practitioners. So everybody has. Yeah, their we're going to get to that. <laughs> everybody um, has their own opinion and belief about how to pass the power and where the power comes from. Um, but there are some of those big sort of common areas like being born with the gift. There is also, uh, I mean, I've met people who think you can steal the gift. It's this sort of uh, what I would call this psychic vampirism, you know, people that have the ability to leech power or energy from other practitioners. And that's a really interesting area to look at, but it's not very common. I was surprised to find out that Ozark healers, much like regular doctors, have to take um, like their version of an oath to do no harm and to only heal people. Um, so, which instantly led me to the question, which I know there isn't, but like, is there some kind of a council or is there some ritual that you have to go through to take this oath? Do you take this oath in front of somebody? Do you take this oath... Um, when somebody passes the knowledge down to you, or is this something that's a very personal thing that you do with yourself? Uh, traditionally, it's been a very personal thing. Um, you know, amongst families or people that work with uh, younger apprentices, things like that, they may these these are sort these are more sort of cultural rules than you know firm and fast rules. Um, so they may just you know, explain this stuff to their apprentice while they are learning and while they are passing down these rituals and verbal charms and things like that. Um, you know, I've never encountered anybody that, you know, professed them as sort of oaths or anything like that. But it is, I think these rules are sort of, they stem from the culture itself. Um, so the idea of, you know, healing all and not doing harm that stems from, the culture. It stems from a culture that not necessarily fears or condemns that sort of uh, retribution work because it's definitely present amongst practitioners. Mm -hmm. but it's mostly um, the idea of compassion, the idea of hospitality, like I was talking about earlier. So you never turn away anyone. Um, and that goes back to hospitality. Even if you don't like them, you'll heal them. <laughs> um, again back to the hospitality and then the compassion just this this idea of um wh what makes a community function and ultimately i think people in the ozarks have found that is compassion so that's manifest that manifests itself amongst healers with you know healing and trying trying not to do harm but that idea of not doing harm people get very creative with with their work <laughs> i've seen some people do some pretty uh um, I guess militia, but still claim to not be doing harm. Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of skirting the rules <laughs> or how, how you well, wish to interpret it, them. It's really interesting to look at because so much of folk magic is based in language and semantics. And it's, it's just fascinating to look at because you can kind of talk your way around anything. And I think the people that are really good uh, practitioners are the ones that have those quick almost poetic minds um and so they're able to make every blessing can also be a curse for people like that and so i think that's it's a very interesting area to work in so you one of the rules that you had in here was that um someone has to ask for healing first you're not allowed to go and offer healing 
a person has to ask you for it, which I thought was was pretty interesting. Like you're not allowed to um, like say, hey, I'm a healer. I can heal you. You know, you just how do you go about that? You just put it out there that you're a healer or uh, how does that work? And if you could talk about some of the other rules that healers have to follow. Sure. Um, there, I mean, there's mixed feelings about um, advertising for your services as well as taking money. I think those are probably the two most argued over areas, not just in Ozark folk magic, but it, amongst practitioners from all different kinds of traditions. Um, amongst the, the practitioners that I've met and also sort of going back to more of the traditional, I guess you could say conservative practitioners um there's this idea that healing healing has to be an act of sacrifice and so there's this idea that if a person isn't willing to admit that they need healing that they're not ready for the healing and so it's it's really trying to pull people and engage them in their own healing process so I work in that way. I do advertise for the, the stuff that I do, but I don't typically, you know, if somebody says, you know, that something's going wrong in their life, unless it's a friend or family member or something like that, I don't typically say, well, I can help you develop a ritual to help with that. Um, just because I think that the act of um, going on your own search for help um, is, is a really big part of that healing process. And so I knew a lot of old tall tales and things like that. And he, he put it to me in a really good way. He said that there, there's always been this journey for healing and people have to connect to that. And if people don't connect to the journey, they don't get healed. And so what he was talking about was all of these old tall tales that kind of follow the same formula. Somebody is ill and so they go to the doctor or they go to the local pharmacist and they get, you know, herbal medicines or pills or whatever, but the illness persists. And so then they start suspecting that something deeper is there. So they ask around for somebody who knows things, as they say, or somebody who has the gift. And that person is always removed from the, the, the region. It's, they're always sort of outside of town in the mountains or in the woods. And so they go on this journey. They go and they seek out this person. Most of the time they have to find them or they have to ask directions. And, you know, in some of the old tales, they, they encounter lots of uh, trouble along the way to find the healer. But once they find the healer, they ask for help and help is given. But that journey is an important part of the process. And for practitioners, you know, we're always sort of thinking about that journey for our patients or for our clients, even though the clients, the patients, they may not know that they're going on this journey. <laughs> you know, that I, I firmly believe that that journey is an important part of the process. So traditionally people, you know, might not have advertised for their services because they wanted people to really seek them out. Uh, I've met several healers that they don't advertise. They, they firmly believe that the people that need to find them will find them. And to some extent, I work in that way. I don't, I'm not, you know, putting up posters around town for my services, things like that. I believe that if somebody, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. If somebody's meant to find me, they'll find me. But another really debated area is taking money. Um, there's a lot of traditional practitioners that believe you shouldn't take any money for what you do because the gift isn't your own. It's a gift. 
So how can you charge people for something that isn't that you don't even own? That's not even a part of you. I don't believe that. I, I do charge for my services because I believe that, you know, people some people really do need to make that sort of sacrifice uh, to engage with their own healing system. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> there's lots of these rules, but they're, they're more sort of born from within the culture. Uh, and so there, there's another one that is you, you never work on somebody that's already been worked on by another healer. And really, that is more of a practicality than anything. Um, it's, it's just the idea that you don't want to make enemies. Uh, you don't want to try to, you know, do work on somebody that, you know, somebody else has been trying to help. I do make exceptions, though, in cases where maybe somebody hasn't gotten the, the level of healing that they needed, uh, in which case I will help them out. But really, it's a traditionally it's been used as a way to not make enemies, because uh, the the person you don't want to have as your enemy is somebody else. With then you've got a wizard battle on your hands. <laughs> We're back to that again. Um, yeah. So, um, could you give me an like? Well, I've I've also read in here that like when you go in, you just don't go into somebody and say, hi, how you doing? Uh, my name's Brandon and I see that you're suffering from X, Y, or Z or whatever. I'm going to do this ritual and then out the door, have a nice day. Folk magic, you tend to sit down and actually care for the person in multiple ways. You listen to what they have to say. You, you know, you try to get a feel for what the person is and you actually care for them in, in more than just going out and casting a spell. You're there like you've, you've got bedside manner for, you know, which is, which is more than most doctors do nowadays. Most doctors are going to hospital. Like when my wife was having a baby, we had seven different doctors and a couple of different nurses all walk in, introduce themselves, walk out, and we never saw them again or we would see them for five minutes and they would be gone. Right. You know, nobody really sat down and said, hey, how are you? How are you feeling? You know, have you thought about waiting to name the baby? You know, and tried to get a feel for what we were. It was very much, hi, how are you? Okay, blah, blah, yes, your vitals are good. And okay, I'm gone, bye. And then somebody else would walk in and you're like what the hell's going on here you know (laughs) so whereas you guys you you try to make it a point to sit down with the patient that you're working with and and really try to get a feel for them um am i right about this absolutely um uh, i mean a huge part of of ozark folk healing systems in general is uh not just observing the patient in the moment but observing them over time so we're constantly looking for signs and omens uh, or what Ozarkers call tokens. Um, and these can pop up at any time. So when I'm working with a client, I may do really what I do is I just talk to people mostly. And that is a very traditional way of working. Um, you know, a lot of folk healers were folk psychologists more than anything. Uh, A lot of problems can be helped just by listening to somebody and helping them work out their issue. Uh, And so that's what I do. I, you know, somebody may contact me with an issue. And the first thing that we do is talk about it. I talk not only about how how the issue has been manifesting, but everything in their life that's been going on. Have you changed jobs? Are you stressed right now? How's your relationships? How's your living situation? How's your other, you know, health? And so not getting this sort of big picture, but then beyond that, 
You know, I want to know what your dreams have been like. I want to be able to look for those signs and these omens, all of that stuff that maybe you don't notice is happening in your life. But because I am somebody that's connected to that, that sort of spirit world, maybe I can see it a little bit clearer. And so traditionally, um, you know, healers may stay in a person's house with them. They may help take care of their kids or cook for them. And from the outside, that that looks like just good, you know, bedside manner, palliative care, things like that. But underneath that, the, there's a lot going on. The practitioner is looking for signs and omens of the, you know, that point to how their work is 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 proceeding. So they may look for good signs that, you know, oh, the, the cures that I'm using or the ritual that we're doing is working. Uh, or they may look for signs that somebody is trying to intrude upon their work. So maybe, you know, maybe it's a curse that came from somebody and that person is trying to, you know, get in to the spiritually get in uh, to affect the work. So from the outside, you know, the healer is just sort of hanging around and taking care of things. But underneath they're they're looking for all these very complicated signs and omens. And, uh, you know, they they do divinations with dreams and, you know, with dousing and with fire and all this other stuff to make sure that the 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 work that they are doing is working to to at the best ability <laughs> or the best level uh, for their patient. And so that's one of those areas that is really fascinating to me because I see myself so much as, you know, a, a person that's providing the the other side of the healing process. And you know, so traditionally, Ozark people haven't really made a separation between healing the body and healing the spirit. They they are healed at the same time, sometimes using different methods, but they both go hand in hand. And I think that's one thing that we've kind of lost in recent years. Uh, we're we're very healing the body, but then there's this other side that we're neglecting, and I think it's getting better. Um, I think that as more and more people get interested in this stuff, it's really getting better. But that's one area that I see myself as, you know, kind of fitting in is is providing that that uh, care for the spirit, observing those signs to make sure that what's happening is is, is going well and um, p- putting people at ease more than anything so that they can healthy, healthy, be healthy and engage in their healing process and, and on all of that. You make a, a point in your book, you talk, there's a section where you talk about the differences between physical illness and magical illness. So could you give us some examples of, of how that works? Like, what are you looking for? Do you still try to differentiate between physical illness and magical illness? And if so, you know, give us some examples of what that would be. Right. So w- with physical illnesses, Well, I should say all magical illnesses manifest as physical illnesses. The only difference is that with magical illnesses, you know, they tend to be prolonged. They tend to have very odd symptoms. Um, But I will say that a lot of what we sort of counted as magical illnesses in the past um, you know, today we realize that they are, in fact, real illnesses. Um, one, one I like to talk about is is live things. Um, so it's this magical illness where it, it gives the sensation of crawling creatures underneath your skin. 
And so a lot of things can be diagnosed today as, you know, nerve issues, muscle issues, things like that. But then there's also this possible magical other side as well. Um, but all magical illnesses sort of manifest as physical illnesses first. And when I'm working with a client, I, I usually always try to rule out physical illness by suggesting that they see a doctor, first of all. So I'm not a licensed medical yeah. professional. So I, I always tell people, you know, let go see a doctor first. And if you still want me to help provide that sort of other side, um, I can do that. Um, and then if they are still having issues, uh, we might treat it as a magical illness. But what I see today, more often than not, magical illnesses are, are manifesting as things like fear, anxiety, um, these sort of a lot of the like loss of sleep and, and a lot of this other stuff. So the magical illnesses that, you know, my great, great, great grandparents would have experienced are very different than the magical illnesses today. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the, the curses and hexes that, that people have, they manifest in, in sort of psychological ways these days rather than physical ways I've found. Um, and so in that case, you know, I may suggest somebody see a therapist or something like that, but I try to provide what I can to help people sort of engage in their healing. Um, but sometimes it's really hard to differentiate because like I said, those magical illnesses often have those very physical manifestations. I was having a conversation. It's funny. You should bring this up. I was having a conversation last week with somebody in a group on Facebook about how with COVID just coming through, COVID affects a lot of people in very different ways. Um, for example, when I had COVID, I had a black licorice taste in my mouth, um, and there was a few other odd things, and I've, I've, I've been a couple of other COVID survivors groups, and people are reporting all kinds of different side effects. Some people report losing their hair. It's not like when you catch the flu, there's a set list of symptoms that fall into that. With COVID, there's symptoms that range all over the board in all kinds of right. different ways. And the person I was talking to was like, yeah, this almost reacts like a magical illness because it doesn't follow set patterns or anything like that. And I was like, yeah, that's that's a strange way of looking at it. You know, I, I never really thought of it that way because it, it's it affects people, so many people in so many different ways that, you know, it, it kind of makes you scratch your head. And it kind of mirrors what you just said about how these illnesses affect people sometimes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you also have a section in the book that talks about differentiation. The, the, the magic breaks down on much different levels in here. So I've got a few different questions to ask you about this as well. But I want to start with the role of gender in folk healing, that male practitioners do things differently than a female practitioner. So let's start with that. Well, so it's different. Uh, we have to make the differentiation between modern practitioners and traditional practitioners. Today, it's it's less common to see the, the firm gender divide. Um, although when it comes to uh, like midwifery, um, that is still dominated by women and probably should be, to be honest. <laughs> um, but traditionally, the, you know, there was this taboo against men working anything to do with the, the female body. And so 
even amongst uh, this extended to country doctors who were very uncomfortable working with women um, and also to you know, spiritual healers or magical healers as well. Uh, the only doctor, traditional doctor that could work with women was the, the herbalist. Um, that usually didn't have any sort of gender taboos, but it really gave rise to the granny women. And the granny women were typically older women who had had you know, quite a few children of their own, grandchildren, things like that. They sort of naturally went into the role of the midwife and, you know, helped with their own extended family, you know, and birthing their children, things like that. But the granny women really filled that hole in society, that void um, left by the male doctors. Um, otherwise, you know, women wouldn't have got any health care whatsoever. So the granny women were really important figures in the community. They were pretty much the only people that could you know, do anything for women and not just working with, you know, birthing children and things like that, but any women's issues, they were the people to talk to. So they, they were very important, but they've been really, uh, <laughs> they've been poo-pooed over <laughs> the, the years. They were the first ones to be accused of witchcraft, usually. They were the ones that were, you know, looked down on in the community um, because, you know, they, they were doing the, the dirty work um, or, you know, based on the, the, what the uh, community believed anyway. So the granny women were really, really important for the community, and they still are. I've met some granny women uh, who are, you know, midwives and herbalists, and they have verbal charms that, that you know, traditionally the granny women was sort of all-encompassing figure. Um, so they weren't only healing with herbs and mineral compounds and things like that. They were healing with prayers and charms and rituals and all sorts of stuff. So it's that is one area that's um, really fascinating to look at um, today because there are there are still granny women around, um, but that gender divide has, for the most part, kind of gone away in modern times. I d I haven't met any male healers who refuse to work with women. Um, the male healers that I met actually were very, um, were very firm in their belief that the healer should work for anybody. Um, the healer should be above the taboos of the community. Um, so if the, if the community looked down on a person, I, I met a guy who um, there was kind of a local sort of homeless population uh, around the area and he was offering them healing uh, even though the community was kind of looking down on them he, he firmly believed that that healing should go to anyone so luckily it's changed but still I mean when we look back to the, the sort of traditional practices that gender divide was very present um, witches were almost always women and I mean, there's a reason for that. <laughs> the women were already marginalized in the community, and so they were easy targets. Uh, witches were almost always older women. Uh, again, widows, midwives, things like that. They were easy targets in the community. And so luckily, a lot of that has changed over the years. And I think it's getting a lot better um, with every generation, it seems. Um, but I think that's still, it's still a sort of, uh, you know, bad spot on our history that, you know, we kind of need to face. 
So let's move along to, this is the one that I, I kind of want to spend a little sure. bit of time on here. And you have in here that there are different kinds of practitioners for what you do. And you have yard healers, you've already mentioned granny women, uh, power doctors, and mm -hmm. witch masters. What are the differences between all of these? Because me, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. So it's, you know, there's the different classes of magic users that all were known oh, for yeah. different things. What separated these people and what they did with their practices? Right. Um, again, these are traditional terms. Um, you hardly ever hear these terms anymore. Occasionally, people will call themselves yard doctors, things like that. But it's interesting to see how, um, you know, profession, professional titles have changed over the years. Um, but, you know, traditionally, the yarb doctor was the herbalist. So yarb is the Ozark dialect word for an herb, specifically a medicinal herb. Um, so the yarb doctor was someone who knew all the plants in the woods and how to fix them up for healing. Um, yarb doctors hardly ever worked with magical means. So they, they typically always worked with plants, uh, chemical or uh, mineral compounds. And then once the pharmacies were um, more common in the hills, they would work with tinctures and pharmaceutical compounds as well. They kind of were the folk pharmacist before the pharmacists came to the area. Most herbalists today, I've met lots of people that you know, don't believe there's any magic in the healing that they do. They work with plants, they work with plant chemical compounds in a folk way. They're folk herbalists or, you know, modern yarb doctors. But, you know, I've also met herbalists who pray over their concoctions and salves and things like that. So there is kind of a spiritual component to it, even though they're working with very physical medicines. Uh, even traditional yarb doctors would pray over their medicines or recite certain verbal charms over their medicines, things like that. It's just the, 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 I guess the big portion of their practice was using these physical medicines. Uh, the power doctor was almost the exact opposite. They hardly ever used plants just for the contained chemical compounds. They may use plants, but it was as a cleansing smoke or as a bath. They worked with uh, amulets and charms and talismans, and they worked with prayers and spells and ritual and things like that. Um, it's interesting that no one really knows where power the word power in the power doctor comes from, but there's a, a suspicion that it comes from powwow or at least, uh, you know, in part comes from that. Um, so it, it, because the, the power doctor is very reminiscent of the powwow or the pow, Braukerai doctor, the powwow doctor, uh, in that they, they don't really use a lot of herbal cure of magical cures, ritual, things like that. The witch master is kind of the power doctor, but specifically for um, hexes and curses, things like that. They were more of a specialist um, than the, the power doctor. The power doctor worked with hexes and curses, but also with rheumatism, colds and fevers and things like that. The witch master, there's also the goomer doctor, who is, it's another word for the witch master. Um, goomer, it just goomering is witchcraft or, you know, if you're goomered, you've been hexed or cursed. Uh, so the witch master and the goomer doctor specifically worked against witches. And so they, uh, their whole process was diagnosing 
hexes and then being able to sever the sympathetic connection between the witch and their victim uh, so that, you know, they could no longer affect the person. And then in, in a lot of cases, their work also encompassed sending the curse back to the witch or killing the witch. And there's Whoa. a whole lot of hmm. methods for that. <laughs> were they one of the ones that were like, they would use like hatchets and things like that and put, you, put a hatchet under your bed or use hatchets in their practices? Well, so, you know, there's, there's lots of different methods. The most common one, um, they would make effigies. So sp- we call them spite dolls. Um, but that's make- what I was going to ask you about too. Cool. Okay. <laughs> spite dolls. Well, the whole thing with spite dolls is, um, you know, they were used by healers as well as people who were working with curses. Um, healers used dolls like this to work remotely on their patients. And I've seen even modern practitioners that do that. They can't be around patient, but they will have some of their clothes or hair or something like that. And they'll make a doll and they'll heal the doll. And there, and then the, you know, by extension, they'll heal the person the doll represents. But witch masters would use spite dolls made in the image of the witch or the person that they identified as the the hexer. And usually they would shoot it with a silver bullet. The idea being that by doing that, somehow they would be able to lame or kill the the witch on the other side. And there's a whole lot of tall tales and stories about witch masters that do stuff have done stuff like that. Um, I think just by speaking to healers, um, the reality of the situation was that you know there was never there was never a witch on the other end. There were there were hardly ever anybody that was actually throwing curses and things like that. Um, that yeah, the reality was that healers and practitioners more often than not they were sending away curses and hexes to these sort of um, I guess otherworldly locations. So, for instance, uh, in traditional charms, healers or witch masters would send away hexes into the West. And there's an association in Ozark cosmology with the West being the land of evil or the land of sickness. So they would send these hexes back to the witch who lives in the West or the witch that lives over on the mountain. And these things, the, the witch didn't actually exist. It was just sort of a placeholder. It was just a target. Um, well, that explains Utah. Because <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> that stuff's got to go somewhere. You, right. you just, we're going to send that over to the West. I mean, there's this big repository where all this bad shit just lands, right. you know? <laughs> People in Colorado are like, okay, enough, you know? <laughs> but that's another one of those areas that I was talking about where um, the story from the practitioners themselves is very different than from people making up stories on the outside. So, you know, on, from the outside, people observe the witch master or the goomer, goomer doctor, you know, with this effigy of the witch, and they might shoot it with a silver bullet to kill the witch. And from the outside, a lot of sort of tall tales build up around experiences like that. But in reality, the witch master created an effigy of a, a spiritual witch, a supernatural witch. The, 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 it might not have actually existed in reality, but it might have been this sort of cosmic stand-in. Um, they might not, you know, where the hex might have come from a spiritual place rather than from a physical place. Uh, so, there, there, yeah, there's there's lots of <laughs> weird sorts of areas with that. But um, 
typically today people don't use a lot of those terms anymore. What I heard mostly was people people called themselves healers, uh, lots of uh, herb doctors, herbalists, um, spiritual healer. I heard that a lot. Um, and then occasionally people would use witch too, because witch kind of encompasses a lot of, you know, the, the work that a lot of those old professions did. Um, I, I like to call myself a power doctor just because I like reviving the old terms, but it, it isn't something that you really hear. Kind of hipster in that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, but it, yeah, it's not something you not something you really hear much anymore, sadly. Does it say this on your business card, Brandon Weston Power Doctor? It used doctor? to. I think I, I think it changed it. Yeah. Really? Wow. I think I changed it because no one knows what the Power Doctor is. So... <laughs> What do you have on there now? What, what do you actually have business cards? I what do. do they I say think it, I think it's writer, healer, and spirit medium, because that's that's another one of those areas that I can connect to people with. Um, they kind of understand what that means, even though I work in kind of a different way than a lot of spirit mediums they've probably encountered. Um, that's kind of a, an area I can connect to with uh, uh, Ozark traditional means. So the next thing I want to go to, this is something that branches off into um, like areas of Aleister Crowley. You, it, these practices of magic, they break down even further to where you have um, right-hand practices and left-hand practices. Now, people who follow the OTO and all of those um, you know, ancient esoteric orders or what do you want to call it, and Aleister Crowley, you always hear about the right-hand path and the left-hand mm-hmm. path. I don't think that applies the same way to this stuff. This is more a method of if you use your right hand to do this stuff, you you do these things. If you use your your left hand, you do these kinds right. of things. So how does how does the right and left hand practices work with all these? Like, can you be a left-handed yard healer and a right-handed power doctor? And you know how because you you've got different examples of how you'll have like one thing and it'll have you have lists of what happens if you're a left hand and lists of what happens if you're a right hand and i'm like this is not the same as the stuff that i've read in traditional um we'll call it spooky magic for lack of a better term um am i am i right here or do, do these follow the same paths or is this is this just Uses similar terminology, but it's a completely different well, thing. Well, so first of all, I, I have to say that this is a this the the right hand left hand distinction is is my own way of being able to define the practices that I observed. So I actually didn't hear anybody referring to right hand or left hand practices. They just referred to practices, and that was kind of my division uh, because I I kind of wanted people to understand that. Uh, you know, accounts of healing and magic have been very different from amongst practitioners um, than they have been from people looking from the outside in. So traditionally, you know, the, the tales about witches and healers and things like that, they divide up all of these practices into what the witch does, the left hand practices, and what the healer does, the right hand practices. So there's a differentiation between good and evil for lack Absolutely. of a better term. Yeah. So the reality of the situation, though, is that the those who, people who were gifted with this power or who had this connection to the power, practitioners, they were working with both hands. 
and there they didn't make a real distinction between the practices only a distinction between the outcome and so i really i wanted to show people that you know the magic itself the energy is perceived as being ultimately neutral neither left hand nor right hand and it's only how you know you choose to use that neutral power that determines you know whether it is what i would consider right hand or left hand but traditionally practitioners they work with both hands and that that's what i found amongst modern practitioners almost completely across the board with the exception of a small percentage um but from what I've been able to tell based upon old, old timers that I've talked to, traditional healers even way back when also worked in the same exact way. They didn't make a differentiation between those left-hand, right-hand paths. It was just the work. So I really make that distinction as a way of defining what I was seeing, being, being able to show um, the, I guess – both you know look at both sides of it so this is a thing that you more or less created and you just borrowed from the spooky magic for contextual purposes. right and uh, i mean traditional witchcraft in general or at least modern modern writings about traditional witchcraft have really picked up on the the left hand right hand distinctions because like i mean like the term witch, left hand, right hand work, they really, they hold a lot of connotations to them. So it's easy to, to, for people to sort of, uh, be able to, to look at that and know exactly what we're talking about. Um, but for me, it, it's, it's interesting seeing how that neutral magic can be worked in two very opposite ways but neither of those ways are really considered evil. One way might be considered against the grain of culture, like the left-handed path, um, but neither of them have the sort of good evil connotations that have been put upon it by outside writers uh, for a really long time. So you're going to run into somebody who says, yeah, I'm a left-handed granny, you know, granny woman or a granny woman or right-handed power doctor, you know. Well, yeah, I can see you're right-handed. No, no, that's not what I mean, sir. More often than not. And, of course, a lot of modern practitioners, because they've read Crowley, things like that, they may consider themselves a left-handed witch or right-handed witch, things like that. Amongst traditional practitioners, what you might see more often is – perhaps a granny woman that is known for her retribution work, uh, things like that, um, which goes back to the semantics. Retribution just being another word for cursing, but you're cursing with good attention uh, rather than cursing. Wow, that's 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 really reworking the rules. <laughs> right. I mean, I can understand that. Um, I, I can see where... You know, because there is that whole idea of do no harm. Um, me and a friend of mine who is also a magic practitioner, we have a joke between each other where it's do no harm, but take no shit. You know, yep. so you know, I, I guess it works into that. It's just a matter of um, it's like it's like that thing where you're 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 making a wish with the genie. You have to be careful of how you word what you're wishing for to make yep. sure you get what you want. Yeah, and there's also this idea of um, upholding the 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 greatest amount of good in the situation so for example 
Uh, I met uh, a praying granny who, she, I mean, she, she was known in the community. If you had an, an, an issue, she had a Bible verse for it and she, or a prayer for it or a Psalms for it. She worked with the Psalms a lot. Um, and that was just kind of her thing. But she kind of gave me a, a little bit different perspective on on her own retribution work. So specifically, she she one situation, she uh, a friend of hers um, was in a, a really terrible, abusive situation with her husband, and uh, the only way that she could really see to get out of it was doing doing something to the husband. So she wanted. To to hurt him. She wanted to get him out of her life, but this praying granny kind of talked her out of, you know, doing anything, you know, overtly, um, I guess, malicious against him and instead said, well, why don't we do some retribution work? And that I like to call the cursing with good intention because basically that sort of work is, uh, the way she described it is, uh, letting their consequences come to fruition. So at that point, you are acting as a hand of nature almost. Uh, the way she put it was, you know, everybody will reap what they sow, but sometimes people can't, the harvest grows a little bit faster. And so... So you're just helping karma along, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. And that that for me i've incorporated a lot of that sort of retribution stuff into my own work um because i do work so much with helping people to transform even if it's you know people that are you know kind of horrible people or abusive or whatever uh so rather than cursing rather than trying to get them just you know to go away it's more making them see the you know the consequences of their actions in a little bit quicker time. <laughs> so you actually, the term for that is shadow work. So you help people yeah. with shadow work then? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, and so I do a lot of work with the spirit world too. And so I've been called by people to to do exorcisms uh, and all sorts of stuff. Um, but, you know, I, the past six, seven years or so, I've kind of, gone in a different direction. I, I don't do the exorcisms anymore. I, I figured out that, you know, these spirits sometimes need help, just like people sometimes need help. And so a lot of the work that I do isn't in driving the spirits away or driving people away. It's in helping to transform the situation, help heal, you know, like I was saying, bring about the most, the, the most amount of good from the situation that you can. So you have a story in your book. You've got lots of these neat little tales and neat little things in there. You've got one that are talking about how specifically like when a tree gets hit by lightning, if the tree lives, that there's certain things you can and cannot do with the wood from this tree. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, well, so lightning wood uh, is kind of what you're talking about, I think. Uh, um, lightning wood is one of those magical ingredients. We, we're not quite sure where it came from. There are some European traditions that use lightning wood, especially with the oak. 
because uh, oak again you know it goes back to jupiter it, it, and lightning and all of that um so but there's also traditions of using lightning wood amongst indigenous people that you know ozarkers would have encountered in appalachia so we're not quite sure where that came into the culture uh but traditionally people would would view this wood as almost sacred but certainly as um Un, uh, unusual uh specifically you know the the idea being that the lightning has somehow empowered the wood so people would uh take lightning wood and make shavings out of it and then put it around the house and the the wood was supposed to keep away pests so the lightning in the wood would keep away rashes and all of that uh people also used to make toothpicks out of lightning wood the idea being that by using these special toothpicks your tooth would heal quicker um it's never burned um because that's just a taboo against it the idea is that uh or the belief is that if you burn lightning wood you will risk your house burning down um and so it's just kind of one of those weird taboos um I'm not sure. Modern practitioners, I've met people that still work with lightning wood, um, but it's it's kind of one of those older uh, traditional beliefs. Uh, Vance Randolph recorded a lot about lightning wood in his work. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, people use it for protection today. Um, I've seen that. It's pretty common, lightning wood, amulets, and things like that. I think the idea is just that the power of the lightning has somehow charged this tree. And especially if the tree survives, um, if the tree survives through it, it's seen as being extra auspicious. Um, if the tree dies, it's still, the wood is still used, but if it survives, you know, the wood will be taken off carefully so that the tree still survives and keeps going and growing. Um, but there's a lot of these sort of auspicious materials, um, that, you know, are just unusual. There's one charm that I collected that, uh, it involves, uh, it's a, it's a spell to gain the second sight. So to actually be able to see into the spirit world, but it involves collecting, I think 12, what are called impossible items. And they're kind of riddles the way that, that they are posited. And there's other sort of spells and rituals that involve these impossible items too. So uh, one common thing is plants growing on other plants. So a, a, like a holly tree that's growing in the branches of an oak tree uh, is seen as this sort of an auspicious uh, ingredient, extra sort of magical power, things like that. Um, so there's one impossible ingredient uh, or impossible item that is uh, a, uh, a living oak tree growing, uh, so a separate oak tree that's growing from a lightning struck oak tree. <laughs> so it's this life coming from death sort of symbolism. Um, and so the, the leaves might be used uh, for certain spells or rituals or the bark from this this other tree that's growing out of the ashes of uh, this lightning struck tree. So the last thing I'm going to ask you, and I can edit this out of the show if you, if you don't want to talk about it or whatever. Um, I'm very curious, since you've been practicing, you've also mentioned that you've done exorcisms. Do you have any stories of your own that you can tell? Obviously, change the names if you need to in the situations and stuff. But do you have any stories of, of strange things that you've encountered while doing, while practicing this magic or anything like that that you're willing to talk about? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've I've had quite a few experiences. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of haunted barns for some reason. Uh, I talked about this on in another interview about why there are so many haunted barns. Um, but so one situation that kind of I always bring out as a cautionary tale. Uh, this was pretty early on. Uh, when I was working with spirits and ghosts and things like that, I was still using folk exorcisms. I was still in the mindset of driving out spirits instead of communicating with them, things like that. And uh, so I, somebody called me. They were, you know, a, re- a relative or a friend of one of my informants who was also a healer. And so they had some weird activity at their house. And it had been going on for quite a while. They just didn't know who to talk to about it. And, and the healer that I had contacted was like, well, I just met this guy who I think can handle it. Uh, he knows a lot of stuff, I think is what she said. But so I, I, I gathered up my ritual items that I, that I had and I went out and I kind of, I just stayed overnight in the house with the family and I had some weird experiences there. I had... I've always kind of been sensitive to energies and things like that, but I was getting a lot of really bad feelings, uh, different places in the house, especially the basement. And they had this sort of outbuilding nearby that I was also getting really bad feelings from. And so I just started doing my exorcisms and got to the point where those feelings were going away. Um, And then eventually I got to the point where the feelings were lifted altogether the family felt a lot better about it. I felt a lot better about it. So I packed up my stuff and left and went home. And uh, almost immediately, the night I got back, I had a terrible series of nightmares that uh, ended up with some sleep paralysis and things like that. And I, <laughs> so this continued for a few more nights. And I finally, I called a, a healer friend of mine uh, who also worked with spirits. And I was like, hey, I was doing this exorcism and, you know, I don't know what happened. And they they chewed me out about it and uh, let me know that whatever whatever was there that I was working with did leave, but it came with me. It came off, you know, it came out of the house, but was attached to me. And so I, I did some cleansing baths and things like that and, and got it to the point where I, I wasn't having any issues again, but it was it was scary. Uh, that was the first time that I had really uh, experienced any <laughs> repercussions from any of the sort of ritual work that I had done. And that was really, you know, about the time that I started rethinking my whole process uh, and how I was. First- <laughs> Maybe I'm doing this wrong. <laughs> well, absolutely. And so much of, I mean, especially Ozark folk magic, but I think folk magic in general is just trial and error. You know, if something doesn't go right, alter your methods and try again and all of this other stuff. And so I I, I started looking into the practices that I was doing and I kind of sat with myself and meditated on it and, and things like that for a while. And that's when I sort of started developing more of uh, these compassion, you know, sort of practices. And now... I, I, you know, I'm obsessive about cleansing every time, you know, somebody comes to my house for, you know, any work, I cleanse the room, I cleanse myself, uh, because that's a big part of it, you know, 
healers, we see so many different people, so many different energies. We go to all of these different places and, you know, you pick up on stuff like that. You, you carry stuff back home with you. Um, so now I know cleanse, always cleanse. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I've had you on here for, I was originally going to have you on here for an hour. We're going on an over an hour and a half now. Um, and I appreciate you sitting in for this whole time and, and dealing with this massive amount of questions that I've thrown at you. Um, what's funny is even though we've discussed us, we have just barely scratched the surface of everything that's in this book. We've only lightly touched on everything that we've talked about here. And of course, in your book, you go into far more depth about everything that we've discussed here. Um, and if somebody's interested in this, I really, really, really recommend going out and getting this book. And uh, you can find it on Amazon, I'm assuming. That's, you know, that's where I got it. Your publisher sent me a copy, and, and I liked it so much, I went out and bought a copy to send to somebody else. <laughs> I, I believe that when you're doing practicing, that it's important to know where what you're doing came from and the methods of how you practice and how you generate the energies and how you do all these things. And this book does that. And I can tell already that when your next book comes out, the spell book, it's going to be like, read this book first. Now that you've read that book and you understand what's going on, now read this book. Right. Hopefully you have that in the next book too. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely, I, I, and I, the next book I actually have that is sort of a, a, a watered down, uh, brief, concise sort of, touching on important points. So these are the things you absolutely have to remember before going into these rituals. But that, I mean, that was my intention from the beginning was to really not cram everything into one book, but have, uh, you know, a, a volume one and a volume two, uh, and have them both be. I sense a volume three down the road oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I already have ideas about, I really want to write about the little people and spirits in the sort of Ozark other world. Uh, and so I think that's probably going to come down. <laughs> some it's it's time funny. Down. I just had Josh Cutchin on the show last week and that was one of the things I told him. I was like, I really wish you would write a book pertaining to the little people because there's so many legends out there. You've got the puck wedgies. You've got the stuff that we talked on tonight. Um, outside of the European legends of like leprechauns and all of these fey, uh, fairy stories where it seems like the um, the southern United States, their folklore, though mirroring a lot of European folklore, it definitely has its very own distinct flavor and character of its own. Um, and that even goes right on down to the Native Americans. They have their legends of these things as well. Right. And yeah. what you kind of see is this weird melding of... Um, the the native american folklore being mixed in with the with the european folklore that was brought over from overseas like in uh neil right. gaiman's american gods for example yeah. you know um and that in itself it's a lot of people don't understand that no this is different it's similar but it's different in its own way so i was really tickled when i'm flipping through the book and i see the little section you have here on little people which we really didn't talk about tonight i don't i don't want to give all the secrets of this book away because i really want people to go out and buy it but um yeah, again, I'm just it's it's really cool to see somebody taking a more comprehensive step-by-step approach to these practices and the history and things like that. And and like I said, you could, you know, I could easily flip through here. This is another thing like even though you don't have spells in this book, there are books out there full of spells for this stuff. So, yeah. even if you just buy this book and just read this one and then go buy those books, those books will make more sense even though they're not written by you. It'll enhance. It's it's like a flavor enhancer, you know. It's it's like 
it's like Fred's red hot sauce. You put that shit on everything, you know, it's <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I, I, again, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to like fanboy out on you. It's just really cool to see how well and how thorough you've done this and how, you know, like I said, we've only scratched on the surface here and it's, it's really good stuff to just sit down and just really delve into with a morning coffee, you know, as you're sitting there eating your breakfast or what have you. So, um, I'm going to let you go in a minute, but do me a favor after we're done with the interview and hang around for a second. Um, as I always do when I have guests on the show, this is the part of the show where I often say, um, tell people where they can find you, what you have out there. I know you have a blog. Um, did, I think you did a TED Talk as well. Is, is that, does that, am I, am I thinking correctly yeah. on that? Wow, you did yeah, do so a TED I did Talk. A, it's a TEDx Talk um, that I did, oh, 2017, 2018? Yeah. So that's out there. Um, but yeah, I have a, a website, Um where I do, I do post just some sort of blog articles and things like that. There's actually, um, uh, a bunch of the old articles that I've written that are on there as well. Um, that is, uh, one of the places that, uh, you know, if, if you want to come to one of my workshops or lectures or things like that, the past year I've started doing more virtual, um, classes the, I'll post all the information about those classes on the website. And I actually have a website too, that, that you can, purchase if anyone's interested um i have a facebook page ozark healing traditions and then an instagram ozark at ozark healing traditions uh so yeah i do uh, a lot of lectures on <laughs> weird things uh you know ozark folk magic as you know we've been talking about is such a complicated subject so i try to Far i try more to complicated than i thought it was i because right? i've got a few <laughs> books you know and i was like yeah i'm pretty sure i know what this is i've I've read this book and that book again. I've got the long lost friend. I've I've had somebody on the show to talk about that before. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty up to date on this stuff. I I can handle this. And then I get this book and I'm like, whoa, wow, I, I don't know shit. <laughs> so and, and that's just that shows you how much has changed and been integrated into the culture since folklorists were writing about it in the 30s and 40s and so i one of the intentions with this work was for it to be accessible to not only practitioners beginners to advanced practitioners anywhere in between but also people that are interested in the ozarks the history that sort of stuff as well um, i really wanted it to be a starting point for for the conversation because you know we we haven't been talking to each other about the Ozarks for a long time now and I really wanted to change that have you thought about putting together like some kind of a convention for this kind of stuff you know or or like trying to get a bunch of people that are out there trying to get this and get them in one spot have you, have you tried anything like that have you thought about um, like well that? I'm, this year I'm presenting at a couple conferences um, but I have talked to some interested people and we are trying to, we're in the early, early, early stages of uh, perhaps developing an Ozark folk magic and healing conference or retreat um, that is specifically going to be Ozark, but also we're going to bring in all of our Appalachian brothers and sisters um, because we're so close in cultures. Um, but yeah, I am, I am presenting at a couple conferences this year with other uh, folk magicians and uh, so that's that's been really exciting for me is to be able to bring my own heritage to the table 
Do you want to put any of those out sure. there where people can go see you speak? Absolutely. So I'm presenting at uh, Virtus Genii Symposium in uh, July. So uh, it's VGS. You can Google that, VGS 2021. Um, I'm also speaking at the Salem Summer Symposium. It's also called the Salem Folklore and Witchcraft Festival, I believe. But Salem Summer Symposium, I'm going to be presenting there. Um, and so those are the big ones that I'm, I'm going to be at this year. Brandon, thank you very much for coming on here and talking with me pretty much relentlessly about this topic for the last two hours. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I am anxiously awaiting your other books. If you have anything else you'd like to bug me about or come back on the air, you know how to contact me. And I would love to have you back here in the future to discuss more of this. stuff. Absolutely. I would love to come back. Take care, man. Thanks a lot. That was Brandon Weston with a really, really cool book. I, I, If it's not evident by this point, I absolutely love this. And if you're into this book and you like this interview and like this guy has to say, go out and buy this book. It's very well put together. It's nice and thick. There's a lot of information here for what you're paying for it. Um, yeah, go find it on Amazon, um, you know, that, or any place you would go. If you got a local bookstore, you go to, I really like to, like to support local brick and mortar bookstores. So, cause there's not many of them left. Like my greatest thing in the world is to walk into a bookstore and just get lost in one for hours, the smell, everything, but yeah, go find it, buy it. It's a great book. Um, as we said, there's not really a lot in here in regards to actual spells and things like that. There's a lot of information about herbs and different things that they're used for, but actual, um, like he goes into depth, like this is how this magic works. This is how these people do these kinds of things. And if, if you wanted to buy this book and start practicing this kind of magic, there's enough in here where you could probably do it. And there's a lot of other books that are out there on this topic, but none of them really go in as depth as well as he does about the history of the practice and things like that. And again, just buy this one and then wait for his next book to come out, which is going to be the spell book. So uh, moving on, um, I'm going to be taking a break from the show for the next few weeks primarily because summer is now here. For the most part, COVID is over with. At least it is for me and the people that I hang out with in my family. We're all vaccinated. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of catching up to do. And I, I just really right now have no time in my personal life for much of anything. I've barely ridden my motorcycle at all. And people that know me know I love to get out and ride my motorcycle. And I've got spots that I go to and stuff. I just have no time right now. My, my family life is pretty insane. Um, I've got a lot of things pulling me in different directions, going different places and stuff. So something has to give somewhere and I can't really, you know, push my personal life out of the way. And the other thing is I have a stack. I have another stack of books here that I have to read. As soon as I get done with books, it seems like the universe says, oh, okay, here's more, have more books. And I'll be damned if the next round of books that came through, you know, most of them are great books. And for people that I want to get on the show, I do have at least one interview coming up in the next couple of weeks. Shelly is going to be returning on it. And it's um, it's about pagan death customs and funeral practices with an actual necromancer 
and a leader of a witch coven. I'll, I'll put it that way. There's really no other way to describe it. This woman's kind of the total package, and she's really cool. Uh, Gary Morgan also has her coming on the show, but I want to try to snag her and get her on here first before Gary does. Gary, I love you, but <laughs> really want to get this person on the show. So um, that one's going to be really cool. We're, we're, do, we're reading the book right now and putting notes together and what we're going to ask this person and everything, and we're really looking forward to that one. The direction that the show seems to be going for the time being seems to be more into a magical practitioner, this 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 weird direction, and that's the way it's going right now. And I've learned the one thing that I've learned about this show over the twelve years that I've been running it and putting it together and doing all this stuff is the more that I try to control it and try to make it go somewhere, the less it wants to function properly or feel natural. So. I've pretty much just going to sit back and, you know, okay, this is this is the book that I'm reading. This is what falls into my lap. This is the interview that presents itself. This is the way things seem to want to go. Then that's the way that I'm going to let them go. But for the summer release schedule, it's going to be sporadic as are most of the episodes on this show as, as things have come to be. Uh, and that's primarily just because summer's here and it's busy and, you know, everybody's going through this right now. We've all got a lot of catching up to do because we've spent the last year, you know, hobbled down and, you know, and now we're all getting back out. And, you know, that's that's just the way that it's going right now. So uh, having rambled and said all that and geeked out majorly on this episode, um, I'm going to let you guys go and I will see you guys again soon. This is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit.
How soon? 